This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg.
Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, a little bit of a summer break. We're heading to Southwest Harbor in Maine, where we'll hold court, so to speak, at Beale's Lobster Pier. I like to say when the going gets tough, the tough eat lobster rolls. But we'll discuss the world's problems out on the pier. I'll speak with Kevin Schneider, the superintendent of Acadia National Park, with an update on the pressures facing all national parks as the number of visitors explodes. Then, of course, I have to talk lobsters with Sue Bernier of the Island Institute with an update on the lobster population and what those numbers are telling us about the environment. And then my conversation with television director Michael Pressman. You've seen his work for years. Law and Order, Blue Bloods, Chicago Med. But when he wants a different kind of reality, he heads for Maine. What brought him there? And perhaps most important, what keeps him there? What lessons has he learned? First up, a visit to Acadia National Park with Superintendent Kevin Schneider. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Devin, welcome. Hey, Peter. Welcome to Acadia. We're glad to have you here. Now, it's interesting because most people, I mean, they're familiar with Yosemite or the concept of Yosemite, uh, Yellowstone, uh, but Acadia is a real gem. And people don't realize, uh, you know, it's, it's more than just like one of the top 10. We're talking 50 thousand acres of, of opportunity here, plus the highest mountain, right? You got the highest mountain in, in the Northeast. Yeah, Acadia is really the crown jewel of the East Coast of the United States. We have the highest mountain on the eastern seaboard, Cadillac Mountain. Uh, it's a place where you can see the the, the sun greet the American continent for the first time uh, each day. Uh, and you've got lakes, you've got the ocean, you've got miles of hiking trail, carriage roads. It's an incredible place. I to did be. my research, 158 miles yeah, of that's hiking. Right. That's right. It's nonstop. There's so much to pack in here. Of course, the question you just raised using that terminology is how many people are packing in? <laughs> because this is a summer in which, you know, so many national parks are, are insisting on reservations because they have to have them, right? Americans are going back on the road. Airfares of, of, in many markets have quadrupled. And even though gas prices are higher, we haven't reached the tipping point yet where people are not going to get in their car. Because for a family of four, if your airfare just went up $400, that means for a family of four, that's a $1,600 airline ticket. Even if gas was $10 a gallon, you're still going to get in the car, which means where are you going to go? And of course, a national, national park. Parks. That's right. And national parks are some of the most sort of budget-friendly destinations. You can camp. You know, hiking doesn't doesn't cost a whole lot. So we do think these are great uh, family-friendly destinations. Yeah, our fee is $30 for seven days. Uh, it's a great Great value. $30 for seven days. You can't go to a movie for $30. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. It is. It's cheaper than going out to lunch, and you get seven days of, of one of the most iconic national parks in this country. Well, let's talk about this location. What are the surprises that people aren't expecting? 
Yeah, I think I think Maine as a destination and Acadia in particular is a place where you can really interact with the communities. Uh, it's not just about the park. The park is part of the communities, and the communities are part of the park. So you can go out right where we're sitting here and go talk to a lobsterman uh, who's out fishing for the day. Uh, you I'm going to be talking to one later in the show. <laughs> That's I can't come to Maine without talking to a lobsterman. And, and eating a lobster as well. Yes, of course. They're everywhere. <laughs> They're <laughs> everywhere. They are. How it's many lobsters of... do you eat in a week? <laughs> I, I wish I could say seven or 15, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a treat. But bottom line is, you're so much a part of the community, right? It's, it's hard to tell the boundaries. That's right. Yeah. And that's what makes Acadia special is we really are part of the part of the community and the communities are part of us. And so, you know, you can be in the park and then be, you know, sitting on a wharf, having lunch, having a lobster roll for lunch on a, on an idyllic summer day. As a year round destination, let's be honest, Maine gets a little cold in the winter, right? Maine's a wonderful place to visit in the winter. See, I'm Acadia with you. As I'm well. with you. I'm with you. I'm, I'm an off-season guy. I love to ski. And so when we have uh, snow here, the carriage roads are groomed for cross-country skiing. And I think it's some of the best skiing in the country. It's absolutely blissful. You can ice skate if, if we don't have snow. We can be a little fickle in the winter in terms of snow levels because we're on the coast. You go inland, there's plenty of snow in Maine. But uh, when we don't have snow, you can ice skate, you can hike. Uh, tremendous winter opportunities here. And the thing is, when you say you have the groomed roads, are, are vehicles prohibited? So on our, we, have, we have 55 miles of carriage roads. These are broken stone roads that were built by John D. Rockefeller Jr. They were built for touring the park without automobiles, for being on a horse-drawn carriage. And now they're used by horse-drawn carriages, horseback riders, but they're also used by bikers. Wait a minute, I can do a horse-drawn carriage ride through the park? You absolutely okay, I'm can. I'm totally in. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'll share with you my Yosemite story because... Uh, in the early days of that park, people would tour it with Model Ts. They would drive Model T Fords, mm-hmm. right, which went maybe 20 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And they still have a few Model Ts out there, and they, you can still go through the park on the Model Ts. <laughs> That's great. Well, back in that day, uh, at Acadia, there was actually a prohibition of automobiles on the island at one time. And there were, they call it the car wars, people fighting about whether or not automobiles should be restricted from Mount Desert Island. And as, as you can imagine, with 4 million visitors, congestion in cars is one of our challenges here. Well, let's talk about that. What are you doing with 4 million visitors? How do you manage that? Well, one of the most important components is a mass transit system, the island. Explorer. So if you're thinking about a visit to Acadia, I would highly encourage folks to consider taking the bus. Have a car-free visit. It's a great way to get around the park. Another thing that we're doing... Because you don't need a car in the park. That's right. Once you, If you can use the bus for most of the destinations that you'll want to get to, uh, the bus is a great way to do it. One of the other things that we're doing is we do have a vehicle reservation system for Cadillac Mountain. Uh, Cadillac is one of the most congested locations in the park, but with the reservation system. And by the way, Cadillac is not named for the car. That's right. It, that's right. It's named for one of the French uh, explorers who uh, originally... Uh, uh, came here in the 1600 time frame. And so uh, you can, if you, you're required to have a reservation during the summer season to drive your car up Cadillac, uh, but that really helps make sure that you'll find a good place to park. You're going to have a great experience. And for the RV folks? Uh, RVs are not allowed on Cadillac. The road is just too windy and narrow. Right, but for, for the rest of the, for the park? They, they, can, they can travel the rest of the park without a problem. Wow. So when do you reach the point of no return 
or diminishing returns, I should say, where the number of visitors just becomes too hard to manage? Well, we want to make sure that everyone has a really high quality experience, you know, and we want to also protect what makes Acadia special. And so that's where we're doing things like really trying to encourage people to take the bus. We're, you know, using a reservation system for Cadillac Mountain. Before the reservation system on, on a sunrise, which is the most popular time at Cadillac, we would have 500 cars at the top of Cadillac Mountain. There's only 150 parking spaces. So it was just an absolute chaotic mess. And the reservation system uh, kind of even, evens that out throughout the day so that everyone gets a chance to go up. Um, and if you don't have a reservation, you can ride your bike up Cadillac without a reservation. You can hike up the mountain. There's several trails. You can take I want to ride my bike down. That would be fun. You, you, of course, you got to get up first. Uh, yeah, you had to mention that, yeah. And uh, you, can, you can take a taxi or a commercial tour up Cadillac. So there are a number of ways for folks to, to get up there. What about dark sky tourism? Are you guys doing some stargate? Yeah, star, the stars here are some of the darkest skies on the east coast of the United States. So it's a great place for people to come and, you know, either go up, go up to Cadillac for the evening or go to Sand Beach. Uh, those are great places to watch the stars. Now, you mentioned Sand Beach. Let's put that into, into some perspective, too. The water is not warm here. <laughs> not exactly. You know, I'll have, swim. You been, have you been in? Of course, yeah. I'll swim in the ocean when it's about 75 or 80 degrees here on a nice, which is a hot summer day for us. Yeah, that happens uh, how many days a year? Oh, we get it. Come you on. Know, there are enough. There are enough. <laughs> July and August are, are prime ocean swimming days. But if you want to go for a swim inland, we have incredible lakes in Acadia, and people don't often consider that. But the swimming on the lakes in Acadia is wonderful. Now, and, and the lakes are warm. Now, the lake, no motorized vehicles? It depends on the lake. Some of the lakes do have motorized uh, boats on them. Uh, others do not. Right. I mean, I love a lake that you can go out on a canoe. Yes, yes. And, and, and even many of the motorized uh, I mean, they can lakes. water ski in Cypress Gardens. I'm with them. They can do that. Sure. But if you're going to look at that lake, you want to yeah. experience it with silence. That's right. I, I understand. Some of the lakes have horsepower restrictions. Uh, other lakes don't have any, any motorized boats on them as well. So there's, a, there's a, an array for visitors. So other than the sheer number of visitors, what's your biggest challenge? You know, the biggest long-term challenge facing Acadia and even a short-term challenge is climate change. We are seeing a rapidly changing climate here. And I used to think of climate change as something that would, ha would happen in the future. But it's something it's that we're now. seeing happen now. That's right. You know, it's interesting because I live on an island which is part of a national seashore called Fire Island in New York. And we see it every day. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's rising water levels. Mm -hmm. uh, it's drought. Mm -hmm. It's temperature increases. Mm -hmm. And there's no real way to fix that. Mm -hmm. Right? When the water level rises, you're going to have flooding. That's right. Right? And, and how do you change that? Well, we're seeing, and we're seeing really intense and unusual weather patterns here. You know, we had a storm last summer a year ago in June that dumped five inches of rain in just a couple of hours. It literally wiped out miles of carriage roads, miles of trails. Look what just happened in Yellowstone. That's right. Yeah. You know, intense flooding. You know, we're seeing fires across the country, We've got glaciers in Europe and, and Asia that are collapsing. So, you know, we're seeing these impacts today. And look, look at all your forests. I mean, what's your fire danger? You know, fortunately, we get enough moisture here that fire, Off we don't the have the same fire risk that, say, the western United States does. It's not to say that we couldn't have something burn. We had major fires in 1947 that significantly affected Mount Desert Island. But the number of days where fire danger is really, really elevated is fairly minimal here. By the way, explain Mount Desert Island and tell me if it's Mount Desert Island or Mount Desert. <laughs> well, I think it could be either. Different folks say it differently. It seems like, it seems like many folks say 
Mount Desert Island, but when they're referring to the town, of which there is a town called Mount, Mount Desert, uh, they tend to say Mount Desert when referring to the town. Now, is Mount Desert Island part of Acadia? So Acadia includes lands on Mount Desert Island. It also includes lands on the Scudic Peninsula. It includes lands on Isle of Ho, which is an offshore island, and several other offshore islands as well. So you got a pretty large mandate. We do. We've got about 35,000 acres that we own that's owned by the federal government. We've got another 15,000 where we have conservation easements to protect the vistas that you see when so you're in a So basically like no building. That's right. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or minimal, you know, maybe there's a home. but Or a uh, height restriction. Right. Exactly. When people get ready to go to a national park, and not everybody's been. I mean, we, we as, as crowded as it's been, most Americans actually haven't been to one yet when you think about it. Yeah. What's the biggest mistake they make? I think the most important thing to do is to plan like a park ranger. It's to do your research ahead of time, you know, to think about... Well, if I planned like a park ranger, I'd move here. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that either. <laughs> this is a great place to live. But, you know, my point is to think about what you want to do ahead of time. You know, look at the park's website. That's the single most important thing is just go to the National well, Park's website. Well, I will website. say this. If, the one, if there's one thing that the government's done lately, which I think I can support, you've actually improved the Park Service website. Yeah. I we, mean, you really have. We have a ton of information on our website. It's nps.gov, like nationalparkservice.gov. Each park has a page. You can figure out, do you need a reservation? Do you need a vehicle reservation? Are you going to go camping? If you're going to camp, you better get a reservation ahead of time. Uh, you know, what do you want to see and do there? Just helping plan out your itinerary, helping plan what your activities are, best way you can plan ahead. Okay, speaking of stupid questions, I got to ask one, right? How many people will call and say, what's the Wi-Fi? Come on. <laughs> you know, people certainly want to have connect connectivity when they're here. We're all creatures of habit, yeah, right? Yeah, we get it. We get it. Connectivity here can be spotty on Mount Desert Island. <laughs> Does that say that on your website? Can be spotty? <laughs> I think we do ha actually have some indication of that you know and but some then you're, if you're coming up here for wi-fi you're missing the point well you know i understand people want to be connected to their devices but it is nice to unplug isn't it well you know you can wait to find out the lakers score when you leave the park you know, <laughs> I, I get that but at the same time you're talking to an addicted wi-fi guy so. yeah yeah but i would think that the minute somebody comes into the park their pulse rate drops yeah. They sleep better. You know, my metric, everyone wants to know what's my favorite place in the world. Yeah. I said, here's my metric, where I sleep the best. Yeah. Right? Because where you sleep the best is where you think the best, where you create the best, yeah. where you love the best, where you aspire to come back. Yeah. It's your it's your point of reference. Yeah. Right? And the air. Let's talk about the air at Acadia. Yeah. That is where you sleep the best. Yeah. Well, the medical research actually supports that. When you go outside in nature, your blood pressure drops, you feel better, it releases endorphins. You know, being outdoors is, is medicine at some level. I know for myself, if I'm not out in the park going for a run, going for a hike on a regular basis, I start to get a little grouchy. This is why I live here. It's why I do what I do. You're not pretty grouchy today, so I guess we're good. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking out at a beautiful view here. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. You come to this pier and you, you know, it's postcard time. Yeah. It's absolutely postcard time. Yeah. It's yeah. quiet. Yeah. You know, Everybody knows everybody. Yeah. Right? That's Maine. Everybody knows everybody. It is a it is a small, uh, small state in terms of population, big in terms of geography, but it has some of the most friendly people here and, and people are great. And how big is your staff? Uh, we have a staff of about eighty year round, and then we hire about a hundred and fifty summer seasonals to help us run this place. Wow. So it's, you know, it's a complicated operation. Uh, we're doing everything from maintaining water systems, cleaning restrooms, operating visitor centers, doing doing law enforcement. Providing fire protection for wildland fire. Do you have um, your own fire department? We do. We have a small wildland fire crew here that, in case there's something that breaks out. But we're also supported by the surrounding towns and villages and communities that help us. All right. So here's the secret. We know summer is popular. We know you and I are contrarian travelers. We like the off season. What's your favorite month in Acadia? 
my favorite month is probably February or March. Because that tends to be when we have the most snow. And I love to ski. And, you know, the winter is a time when you really can get this place to yourself. You can go to a restaurant and, you know, it's just a handful of people. People do kind of know each other. You're kind of a local when you're here that time of the year. And, you know, getting out on the carriage roads when we have snow, cross-country skiing, going for a hike, you know, maybe bringing uh, in-step crampons because the trails can get a little icy. Uh, See, there's, a, there's advice I need. It's a yeah. great way. To, it's a great time to be here. How to avoid orthopedic surgery? Get the crampons. There you go. It's a good idea for a lot of our trails in the winter. But... You're going to be out there by yourself. Yeah, you're going to have an experience to yourself. You know, but even in the summer, you can be on some of our trails here and not see a ton of people. Memorial Day weekend, I spent the morning uh, on the carriage roads going for a run. I saw a handful of people. Uh, and then later in the day, I was out in the park in uniform directing traffic and dealing with, you know, 20-minute queues to get into the park. But, but, but my point is, I still had an incredible experience on one of the busiest weekends of the year by just going out early in the morning, going out at 7 in the morning. My thanks to Superintendent Schneider. Of course, you can't go to Maine without seeking out lobster. It's a tradition as old as the state itself, maybe even older. But what can lobsters tell us about the environment, as well as responsible travel? I sit down with Sue Bernier of the Island Institute. Sue Bernier, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. You're going to tell me everything I need to know about where we are because the first thing we talk about is we're actually coming from a working pier. That's Americana. Yes. Working waterfronts here in Maine are one of the last examples of anyone, tourist or everyday person, can look out there and see real people doing real jobs without that interplay of having to be a consumer or having to go to a restaurant. You can actually meet and see the people fishing and hauling that lobster or other fish right to your dinner table. Tell me about the Island Institute. The Island Institute is about 40 years old. We're going to turn 40 years old next summer. We are a community development organization working with island and coastal communities to really protect and preserve these working waterfronts, this way of life that includes economic sustainability and getting ready for climate change. Lots of big changes coming to these working waterfronts and these communities, and we're helping those communities prepare by partnering with them. So it's not a matter of if climate change, it's a matter of when and how we prepare. Correct. The Gulf of Maine is warming faster than 99% of the world's waters. Lobsters like that, cold water. That's scary. <laughs> it's it's pretty scary. Um, but we are innovative. And the wonderful thing about lobstermen and other fishermen, um, they're ready to diversify. They're, they, <laughs> I often joke that uh, give a lobsterman a roll of duct tape and a wrench and he or she can probably fix anything. So we're adapting, we're preparing, and we're diversifying the fishery to make sure that we're still looking at the beautiful uh, Beals Lobster Pier 10, 20 years from now, no matter what happens to those particular species. But Sue, how do you diversify the fishery? You start to invest in uh, the people currently fishing on the water and helping them to learn about aquaculture, Uh, a lobsterman who's also growing kelp, um, a lobsterman who's also uh, farming oysters or scallops, for example, can do more in a full year than they could do in one single lobster season. So as the lobster fishery changes, um, we hope the lobsters stay right where they are. But, if but what I'm hearing from you is it's, you're sounding as if it's almost inevitable that the lobster numbers are going to go down. 
So far, we're seeing that the adult lobster numbers are staying where they are. We had a market year, a, a banner year last year. Um, and But we're seeing the juvenile lobsters, the young lobsters that grow up to be the ones that you eat at your dinner table. Uh, we're seeing fewer and fewer of those. And that's the scary thing. That's the scary thing. They need cold water. Um, they've moved from you know off the coast of Massachusetts and Rhode Island to Maine, and they're going to continue to move north. So we're trying to do what we can to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We're trying to electrify the working waterfront. We're trying to do our part to make sure that we're doing everything we can to keep this lobster fishery viable. But are there any simple solutions? I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be silly, but you can't drop ice in the water. I no. Mean, <laughs> I mean, that's not really going to help. No. But you can talk about and think about how we fish more sustainably. We can talk about um, things like putting electric outboards on all of these skiffs. You can't put an electric outboard on a lobster boat that's going three and four miles offshore, but you can electrify the working waterfront where they work, and we can do our part to make sure that the Gulf of Maine is not getting worse and warmer. Are you seeing the change not just with the lobster, but with other fish as well? So uh, it used to be that people ate Maine shrimp. Um, there is no main shrimp fishery anymore. Uh, we've had several species go by the wayside, and uh, although the lobster fishery is very strong, we need to prepare now for what the, the diversification or the next fishery might look like. Where I grew up in New York, out on Fire Island, we used to have an abundance of seafood. We used to have an abundance of everything from, I mean, bluefish and, and striped bass, mackerel even showed up, uh, blowfish, right? Crab, well, the crab went away years ago. The blowfish went away years ago. Uh, the striped bass and the bluefish are still around. But last summer, the blowfish started to come back. So, I mean, and we don't know why, but there's hope. There's probably a scientist or two out there that knows why or are, are working on why. And we work with a lot of folks at the University of Maine. And researchers and scientists like Bigelow Laboratory are right here on the working waterfront working with us and our lobstermen to figure out why and how to help now. It's really learning about the cycle. because Because I remember going back to Hurricane Sandy back in 2012, uh, our all our clams left. Mm -hmm. All our oysters left. And the reason was the bottom of the bay was so churned up that it destroyed all the eelgrass mm -hmm. that, that protected their habitat. Mm -hmm. And without the eelgrass to protect them, they were sitting ducks, if you excuse that symbolism, for other predatory fish to eat them. Right. And therefore, they couldn't come back. And one of the benefits of aquaculture, um, we are now uh, investing in and have more people growing kelp on the coast of Maine, it was taken for granted. Uh, it, seaweed was a little bit of a nuisance if you're out there trying to dig clams or oysters. Now we're growing it on purpose. We're selling it to the Asian markets who, uh, and Americans need to get on the bandwagon of eating more kale, uh, uh, excuse me, kelp. Kelp is the new kale. Um, we're growing it and the benefits to other species uh, and the, the benefits to the water, the detoxification that happens by growing kelp and other seaweed. Um, it's just amazing. And we're doing more and more of it and helping our local fishermen learn how to do that to help themselves. For someone listening to the show, how do they get involved in the Island Institute? The easiest way to get involved in Island Institute is visit our website, learn more about and these. And the website is? 
islandinstitute.org. Thank you very much. Um, and learn more about these island communities, these coastal communities. Uh, there are other organizations that are strategic partners in this work. Um, I would also encourage people to visit the Maine Island Trails Association at MITA.org, M-I-T-A.org. Uh, that's an organization we started at Island Institute and an organization that literally maps the waterway trail kind of like the Appalachian Trail across the mountains, we have a waterway trail that brings you around to all of these different islands and helps you be a better tourist. But it brings you to these islands in a more responsible way. Absolutely. And if you don't have a kayak, if you don't own your own boat, um, right where here where we're sitting in Southwest Harbor, you can catch a ferry to Swans Island. And while you're on Swans Island, please remember that most of these people on these islands and even here on the mainland or not really the mainland, we're on Mount Desert Island, um, but people here are likely to be self-employed, um, likely to be related to or um, a fisherman themselves. It's so all interdependent. It, it's all interdependent. My thanks to Sue. In the interest of full disclosure, I spent my childhood summers on Fire Island in New York with Michael Pressman. He went on to direct movies and many of the longest-running successful television series you might know. But he surprised me a few years ago when he made the decision to move to Maine. As always, he was ahead of the curve. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Michael Pressman. In Thanks. 2012, we had Hurricane Sandy. And Hurricane Sandy was devastating to so many parts of, of the East Coast, not, not to mention Fire Island itself. Michael lost his house during that storm. And well, my parents' home, actually, the yeah. home that I grew up in yeah. as a child. And, um, you know, thank God... Uh, we've talked about this, but thank God both my parents, who lived into their 90s, had passed uh, a year before the storm. Yeah. Because uh, it would have killed them. In, in you know, To see the house moved 30 feet off its foundation, tilted to the side, we had to take the house down. Yeah. But then you did something else. I, I, I bought a place in Maine. And, and, you know, one of the things are, why Maine? Well... I think I have to go back to my early days of Fire Island to explain it. And, and, and Peter and I have a history in Fire Island. He with his uh, 13-foot Boston Whaler, which is still afloat. And, with, and I, uh, with my savings, purchased at the age of 14 an Alcourt Sunfish, which I recently checked, and I think I got it for a new for about $400. I think it's 5000 now. However, it's the same boat. Um, and I loved sailing. Uh, so that was my love. And connected to that was uh, movie making. I, my father was a director in theater. Uh, and after World War II, and he was a, a veteran, he purchased a, a 60 millimeter Keystone wind-up camera. And with 100-foot loads of 16-millimeter film. Anyway, I made a little movie 
Peter Greenberg drove the Boston Whaler, and um, <laughs> and he was the putt putt person. Whereas the story was about uh, another uh, dear friend of ours, David Mendelssohn, starring in that film. Never starred again. He's now a psychotherapist in New York. But we'll, that's he became sort of, a star psychotherapist because of that film. <laughs> yes, correct. And then he saves Sweet Susie Goodleman, and they sail off together in the Sunfish. Okay. Um, fade out, fade in. Uh, after Hurricane Sandy, um, looking... Oh, I have to jump and say one thing. Um, visited Blue Hill, Maine when I was 17. Uh, girlfriend at the time, subsequently married, divorced. Another another subject. That's another a completely time. different radio yeah, show. Yeah, different radio show. Uh, she was uh, studying at the Kneisel Hall, and it was something magical about Blue Hill, Maine. I don't know. It stayed inside me. It was like Vermont by the water. Uh, then in the mid-80s, I was asked to teach at the Maine Photographic Workshops in Rockport, Maine. And had some wonderful experiences, but also sailed. And once I got on the water in Maine, it got inside and never left me. I had some gorgeous sails. Um, then... In 2012, I think you're right, I visited Maine, contacted a, a dear friend who's a broker, said, show me some properties. I don't even know if I have the money to buy it, but let me look. He walks me down to a land, uh, two acres by the water, mid-coast Maine, house that was built in 1902. Um, uh, he says, you know, it's, it's, it's for sale. And... Um, if you look out on the water there, there's a little spot where at low tide you can walk out to this little island. And he turns to me and says, and it's called Fire Island. <laughs> and I said, uh, I have to buy this place. I don't have the money, so keep me posted. Anyway, that's how it began. And you got the place. I got the place. It took three years because the brother and the sister ended up fighting with each other about the price of the sale, da 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 and then it had to go to court, and thank God, because I was able to have the money to purchase the home. But the other part of it, and I think you can relate to this, Peter, I have to include um, not only my son, but my wife, Maya. Um, my son, Brooks, at the time was 10, and he had fallen in love with Fire Island, as all children did and do. And then I said to him, listen, I'm going to be, I'm on the board of the Rockport uh, Photographic Workshops. You can stay with your friend, Sean, in New York, and I'll be back in three days, or you and Sean can come with me. All right, Sean and I'll come. So we actually stay at the house that I haven't purchased yet, because it's still in litigation, but the, one of the sellers had said, stay in it for three days. Payoff of the story I'm sitting in the in the kitchen talking to the owner at the time, and my son comes running in and says, Dad, Dad, i got to talk to you. And I, I walk out for a second, and he goes, when can we get this place? I want to move to Maine. And I'm going, whoa, 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 slow down. It's going to take some time. He had already heard about Fire Island and walked down to that island. So the connection from both childhood to adulthood, Fire Island to... The, the beauty, the, the, the intoxicating beauty of Maine, I can't explain it other than to say it, it is understood once you come here. And I have to throw in the lobster rolls 
and the lobster, which I gather, I hope we are having after this conversation at uh, Beale's Lobster. What's the exact name? Beale's Lobster Pier. Yes, it is. Perfect. Um, I also wanted to mention something else because we were, you know, we're dealing with the the changes in our life in terms of um, the last couple of years of the pandemic. And Peter and I were talking about the motion picture business in relation to how to deal with running a show during the pandemic. And I wanted to mention something else about it that relates to this conversation. That is March 13th, 2020, the world shut down. And I was in Chicago with my wife and we had just finished the an episode and I had to walk on the set and said, everyone go home. Uh, the whole industry is shutting down. Um, we had a week to close up, and I said to my wife, look, um, we can drive back to Brooklyn. That's where we live. And she said, look at the map. Brooklyn's on fire. New York is exploding. Let's go to Maine. I said, it's the middle of March. She said, no, I think it's the safer thing to do. So we turned around. We flew to Portland, we stayed a night with her daughter who lives in Portland, and then we rented for a month in Camden and then moved into our house uh, in Northport uh, end of April. I spent six months here and um, it was the most glorious six months. Couldn't have been more stressful because Every other day, I was on a Zoom call with the studio trying to figure out how do we begin shooting again. Uh, It was a very, very difficult time for everybody. But to have the the quiet, the privacy, the beauty of Maine, at least to comfort us during these difficult times, was a blessing. You know, people ask me where my favorite places are in the world, and I give them the answer. And the answer is where I sleep the best. That's Mm -hmm. my metric. Uh, Far Island certainly qualifies for me. Maine certainly qualifies for you. Yeah. Where you sleep the best is where you think the best. Where you think the best is where you create the best. Where you create the best is maybe where you love the best. But most importantly, it's where you always aspire to return to. Yes. It's it's that image of the screen door closing. Yeah. That noise. Yeah. The wind coming through off, off the water. And you know what? If you can find it, and you certainly found it in Maine, you don't let that go. No. You're right. Absolutely. And in fact, what's happened for me in the last several years is um, with with the advent technology of the iPhone and the quality of the camera, I'm taking many, many more photographs and printing them and feeling like, you know, photography and photography in Maine, as well as painting. But for me, photography in Maine is the most amazing. How do you adjust to the pandemic when you're shooting? It's one thing for you know for an airline to require me to wear a mask or to go anywhere during that. We all did. But how do you do that on a television show or on a movie set where the word intimacy is part of every script? How well, do you do it? Yeah, it's very hard. But here's the fundamental thing that happened in the movie industry that actually made it probably the safest place to work was after the negotiations with the guilds, they came up with testing protocols so that at the beginning 
we were testing five days a week. Every morning, an actor or a crew member would have to come in early and get a, a rapid test, and then three times a week, a PCR test. So that if there was ever possibly somebody who was asymptomatic, we would know that before they showed up on a set. So I remember very early on, we had a kissing scene in pre-vaccination, and it was very unsettling. It was hard for the actors, but they both had tested negative. That morning, the scene was shot that morning, and it was um, uh, reserved. I can't say it was this big love scene, but it was the... Was it a peck on the cheek or was it kissing? It was kissing. It was serious kissing, but um, uh, as few takes as possible. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You know... Um, it was a terribly frightening time. Yeah. We, were, we were canaries in a coal mine. Uh, it's obviously now with vaccinations, uh, it's, and with a better understanding of, of how one contracts this. You know, I mean, there was a time where, you know, you, you would go to a market and they'd have to wash off all the bags and then you would jump into a shower and dry off the clothes. And it, it was a little bit like, you know, we, we were in the dark ages as far as understanding um, washing hands, don't touch somebody. Turns out it's a very contagious uh, disease. It's airborne. Um, and you want to be very careful when you're indoors. Did anybody get positive who kissed? No. People did get positive. Yeah. And actually what was interesting is the second season, uh, which I was no longer running the show, but I was very close to the show and did episodes, uh, the... Um, COVID became more contagious with the variants and even with vaccinations there were more positive cases but it didn't stop you from traveling nope nope well I um, Chicago to New York we drove there. really yeah it that's, a, off that's a 15 hour drive well with a night off night in Cleveland yeah we did that t twice and then I, I drove, I drive to Maine from New York, but then again, I've got the dog and that's changed in terms of travel, you know, animals on planes, even though he's a service animal. Uh, not anymore. I know. No, no. We, that's a story we talk about a lot, about the emotional service support animals. Yeah. Mostly a scam. Yes. Yes. Uh, what was that word I just heard? Yes. Um, <laughs> though if this dog has gotten so under our skin that I think maybe uh, we're, he needs the emotional support. Um, you know, I do want to say one thing, though, Peter. Since we're here in Maine and we've touched upon the other um, draw, and I don't know if you felt this, lobster. Were, were you aware of still the, 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 the great night at McGuire's to go have a lobster? Yeah, the McGuire's was a bar in Fire Island in Ocean Beach. Right. And they actually, I think it was Monday night. Right. Uh, they had lobster night. Right. And that was the biggest thing ever. It was yep. like the, the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We were paying an arm and a leg. It's we, a yes, different. we were, but we, we, we waited up late for it. Yeah. Right, right. And I, I want to put a little plug in, even though this is probably the primo lobster place, Beals, because of the, the cold water. Um, in Midcoast, there is also Margaret's Lobster Shop, or Lobster, I don't know what you call it, Lobster Stand. Um, and she gets her lobster from here, Northeast. Well, that tells you everything you need to know. So, you know, she's in, she's in uh, good company. So the lobsters have to drive to get to her. Here they just show up. They fly now with the, yeah. the COVID. We should put a mask on a lobster and you can get them over here. <laughs> 
We, we should be playing the B-52 song, Rock Lobster. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but the bottom line is you're now full-time in your head, Maine. I am. That's a great way to put it. And in fact, dreaming of the ultimate dream, which is to shoot a movie up here in Maine. Working on a script. Yeah. I'm working on a screenplay, hopefully to be able to do it, if not next summer, the summer following, but capture the magic of Maine and, and tell a story here. Well, listen, like any place you fall in love with, the idea is not just to, to get there, it's to stay there. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. When was the last time you had lobster? A couple of days ago, I think. Okay, but good. I'm ready for another uh, lobster roll. <laughs> and... Bottom line, I, I have to ask this, uh, and I'm, I'm putting you on the spot. Please. But I'm going to do it, all right? Michael Pressman, how long have you been directing the SVU franchise? The SVU franchise? Well, you know... Or Law & Order, for that matter. Well, Law & Order, I came in in season 15. That was like 15, 20 years ago. But then uh, I've done... I think I'm going to be doing my 19th episode of SVU in... October. Okay, so the only I know there, there's the, what the dead body thing is that what you're bringing? Yes, mm -hmm. I got to be the mm -hmm. body. Quickly, okay. tell me. All right, I haven't read the script yet, but you will be <laughs> the first to know, Peter. <laughs> you will be the first to know. My thanks to Michael, to Sue Bernier, and to Superintendent Schneider, and my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast from Maine. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions. Be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news from Maine to Mumbai and all around the world, grab your lobster rolls and head right to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. 
Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.